Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 18 to 35, and the message is entitled, The Kingdom of God and the Church. Jesus has been teaching the crowds and his disciples as he continues to announce salvation in the present kingdom of God and his soon return and the second coming for judgment. This section is not in chronological order as we've noted, the middle section of Luke, but this section in particular from 11, chapter 11, 14 to 13, 9. And, um, but it's in unifying themes of the believer being light to this world in view of repentance for sinners through the gospel and then being vigilant for his second coming. You can't miss it. And so Jesus here in verses 18 through 35, continues with the theme of the kingdom of God through repentance, revealing three truths about the church. Let me read here, 18 through 35. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in a garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air... Nested in the branches. And again he said, To what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. And he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Then one of uh, said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many will say to you, Will, uh, will say to you, uh, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, once the master of the house has been uh, risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, um, sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. On that very day came a Pharisee, and saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform curse, and perform curse today and tomorrow, and the third day, I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you should not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus continuing with the theme of the kingdom of God through repentance reveals three truths about the church. First, the corruption of the church, verses 18 through 21. The corruption of the church. Secondly, the proportion comprising the church in verse 22 to 30. Thirdly, the distinction of Israel from the church in verse 31 to 35. The corruption of the church comes first as the truth. 18 through 21. Notice in 18, the kingdom of God had arrived and the church is part of the kingdom according to Jesus. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to? The kingdom of God is a key theme. Jesus has been speaking about it all along. Listen to him. In 960, he said, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. In 962, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 109, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. In 1011, the very dust of of your city shall cling to us. We wipe off against, nevertheless, know this. That the kingdom of God has come near you. In 11.2. So he said to them. When you pray. Say our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as in heaven. In 11.17. But he. Knowing their thoughts. Said to them. In other words. They thought. That the kingdom of God was going to arrive. Immediately get into Jerusalem. He says every kingdom divided against itself. Is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. He's been talking about the kingdom. He's talking about people repenting to enter the kingdom. That's the running theme. The church is part of the kingdom. But not all of the kingdom or the kingdom itself. It's important. The kingdom of God is present as the theocracy. The rule um, of God's immediate direction. Over his people. Um, Israel was a theocracy as you know. Uh, ruled by God through the divinely chosen men. Such as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so on and so forth. The high priest. The Jews saw themselves. As God's people. And they saw. The age. In two different stages. The present age. Fallen corrupt. And the age to come. The millennial kingdom. Now. The kingdom of God. It's kind of like an eclipse. It's on earth here. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God arrived. And it is constantly moving forward. We're getting closer. And when it gets to a final eclipse, the rapture happens. And then we come back in the second coming. And the kingdom of God will have arrived. Jesus brings in the kingdom. We're part of the kingdom, but not the kingdom itself. So the kingdom is present and yet to come. This is why James and John both petitioned Jesus for the right hand and left hand in his glory. Because as they were getting close to Jerusalem, they wanted to rule and reign with Jesus. And the ten got ticked off of the two because the ten had the same thing that the two. But the two beat the ten to it. Okay? In Mark ten thirty-five to 45. Yeah, <clears throat> he will weep over Jerusalem in Luke nineteen eleven, And Luke nineteen eleven tells us also that they, they, they perceived it was going to be established immediately. Now... Jesus offered a theocracy by announcing the kingdom of God, which the Jews were waiting for, the restoration of David's throne by the rule and reign of Messiah. 
2 Samuel 7 and many other portions are clearly stated. Now, Jesus uses the term kingdom, basilia, uh, referring to the royal power, the kingly domain, uh, knowing the Jews understood it. The scriptures were given to them. The word is used 162 times in the New Testament. Matthew uses it the most, 54 times. There'd be no surprise where he portrays Jesus as the king of the Jews. Now, some make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. As the kingdom of God, the rule of man, uh, the rule of God in man's heart, and the kingdom of heaven, the overall rule. Um, there may be a slide, but they're used synonymously, so I don't really make a big difference on it. Now, after the resurrection, as you know, Jesus um, taught for 40 days to the apostles about the things of the kingdom. And it was at that time they said in Acts 1, 3, and 6, Lord, will you at that time restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after the resurrection, they still had the Jewish mind. They thought the kingdom would be established now. It's like that kid on the bench. Now, coach, now, coach. No, sit down. Now. I mean, they were ready for it. Now, due to the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the kingdom of God was present, but again yet to come, ultimately in the fulfillment when Jesus returns and sets up the kingdom. Now, notice also the kingdom of God <clears throat> in the age of grace is portrayed as being infiltrated according to Jesus by two parables. The first parable likens the kingdom of God in the church age to a mustard seed. It's a condiment. You can't survive on this, okay? Uh, listen to his words. It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. There is no punchline in both of these parables. Usually parables have a punchline. But they both clearly are said to be a comparison to the kingdom of God and the age of grace. Okay? So by nature of a parable, they compare a contrast. These compare, and that's the literal punchline. By the word liken, an adjective, and the verb compare... Or the word lichen, they appear five times between 18 and 21. The question is whether it is a positive or a negative comparison. We must first note that the mustard seed is an herb and is in a form of a bush, very small. It's the smallest of seed, Mark 4.31 tells us. So you have to crush it up to get that benefit out of it. But the mustard seed will grow at times abnormally large, 8, 10, even 12 feet. Consequently, the birds confuse what is a bush for a tree and they nest in it. No bird makes a nest in a bush. It's too low, the animals get too as young. And so when this bush becomes abnormally large, it's confused for a tree and the birds nest in it. Then for the proper interpretation of the parable of the mustard seed, we must also interpret it in its context of this section and chapter, lest we give it a meaning contrary to its intention. Jesus has just preached the gospel and has been preaching the gospel that requires repentance to escape God's judgment or sinners will perish. 
chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 13, verse 17. It's very, very, very clear. Jesus clearly answers disciples directly that few will be saved in increments, not in numbers. In 23 and 24, we'll get to that. Jesus revealed his people Israel would ultimately reject him and not repent. Luke 13, 34 and 35 will tell us that. The context of this chapter is negative. Rejection and unrepentance. The next thing for the proper interpretation is to ask what do the birds mean or represent? Birds in scripture always represent evil. Always. The parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark, the other two, follow the parable of the sower of the seed. And Jesus said, he interpreted for us that the birds are evil, calls them Satan. They devoured the seed of the gospel preached, Matthew 13, 4, 32, Mark 4, 4, 31 and 32. And we've already seen in Luke 8, 5, the birds snatched up, harpazled the seed from the hard ground. Now, the parable of the sower is a key parable for all other parables. Listen to Mark 4.13. Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand, listen, all parables. In other words, whenever we come to a parable, we know it's going to contrast uh, or compare. And that it has a punchline. But then we also run it through the parable of the sower or the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Because there Jesus gave the kingdom parables, things that were hidden from the foundation of the world. And he gives very specific interpretations of certain things. Consistency. Therefore the birds represent the evil men who will be within the church by an abnormal large growth during the kingdom of God. There was a point in time when this is going to happen. Jesus clearly states. Now, in verse 14... The ruler that objected to the healing of the woman in the synagogue, he was a bird. (laughs) There's always been buzzers in the church. Corrupt men. They will increase as we get closer to the Lord. The church will become corrupt. We already see a lot of that today. To interpret the mustard seed to mean the church will grow. To be large and influential. And that the church will bring in the kingdom is to contradict what proceeds and what follows. All the rest is they're unrepentant. They're rejecting him. This is the liberal interpretation. Sometimes proclaimed as kingdom theology or dominion theology. Channel 40 is into it a lot. Pat Robertson and many others. The positive confession people. The emergent church also says we're wasting time studying prophecy. Rick Warren, head guru, stepping stone to the emergent church. We should just make people comfortable. and We should just, you know, see how people want to come to the church and what to expect from the church. So they give them a lukewarm church. Wow. 
Let's not talk about doctrine. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about, you know, let's just, let's just, let's just worship God. Hmm. I reject this interpretation. It contradicts everything in context. The second parable, verse 20 through 21, likens the kingdom of God in the church age to leaven. And he said, to what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. The use of leaven in the Bible is always, always symbolic of evil, even in the figurative sense right here. Always evil. The first time it's mentioned is uh, the celebration of Passover in Egypt, prohibiting them the emblem of, uh, uh, of, of leaven, taking it out of their houses as, uh, in Exodus twelve fifteen, and, and they would follow the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 15th to the 22nd of October. We're in the holy month of the Jew today, uh, October. The, it starts with the new moons, and then Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of, uh, of Unleavened, uh, of Tabernacles, and all of that. Okay, um, the the Exodus would be in, in April, Passover, a feast of unleavened bread. Now, Jesus just warned the disciples in chapter twelve, verse one, about the leaven of the Pharisees, which was the sin of hypocrisy. There again, it's sin, evil. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, First Corinthians five seven through eight. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, the old sin lifestyle, that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Very clearly, leaven is evil. Therefore, now the woman has to represent evil also. False teaching or religion. And this is confirmed through Scripture. Zechariah 5, 7 through 11 depicts... False religion by two women with the stork-like wings and another woman in the basket and it's picked up and taken to Shinar, Babylon, the false religion. And it's called, this is wickedness. Whenever a woman is portrayed in scripture in opposition to God, it's false religion and a woman is always depicted as that. This is confirmed in the parallel passage of the kingdom, uh, kingdom parables. Uh, Matthew uh, 13, 33 says, The kingdom of heaven is like an leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Confirmation, same thing. This is warned against in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have few things against you because you allow the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, anything sacrificed to idols. A woman's more emotional. A woman's more, it's easier to be led astray. It's simple. Not because you're more, less intelligent, but because of being more emotional. It's simple. That's why the Bible says that a woman's not to usurp authority over a man in the position of a pastor teacher over the church of Jesus Christ. Because a man is more stable. A man thinks more cognitively and makes rational decisions that way. I've never heard of a man being seduced or deceived sexually by a woman. Have you? Women are because they're more emotional and make decisions. Doesn't mean you're inferior. Doesn't mean you're evil. It means that we are totally different individuals. 
And it even carries on in scriptures, ladies and gentlemen. This is not, I'm not a chauvinist pig. I'm a fe- no, 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 no. Get the feminists out of your brain, Christian ladies, okay? And put the godly woman in your heart. It's important. The great harlot, the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, uh, reigning with the kings of the earth in Revelation 17, verse 3, 4, 6, 9, 18. Representation of the Catholic Church who has killed so many Christians throughout the ages. The great inquisition and everything else. The one who persecuted the Jews through Hitler, the Catholic Church, though it's never brought out. The Catholic Church gave Hitler's men a passage out of Germany to South America, Mexico, everywhere. Simple. Now, the meal of bread represents the word of God. Leaven rots, causing bread to rise. You know that, ladies. You let it rise. Don't let it rise too much. It'll blow up on you, okay? Um, the proper interpretation of the leaven in the meal is one of false teaching and doctrine introduced into the church to corrupt God's word. Now, we can clearly see this today. We see it in the past, but we see it in, in great measures today. This interpretation is consistent with the context and the two parables of double warning. The mustard seed and the meal and the leaven. So it's emphatic. Double means emphatic. Great danger. To interpret it as a positive growth of influence would contradict the mustard seed. And what precedes and what follows, it is a unifying context. Remember, Jesus is experiencing growing opposition and hostility as he's headed down to Jerusalem. It's like Rob Bell, one of the chief spokesmen for the emergent church, in his book, Love Wins, where he says that everybody ends up in heaven at the end, and there's no hell. Really. His origin is with Mars Hills with Pastor um, Mark Driscoll. They're the emerging guys, McLaren and all these guys, redefining Christianity, redefining the church, culturalizing it. I certainly don't want to be associated with them. I certainly don't want anybody to believe that I agree with them at all. We see in our day the liberal, large ecumenical movement calling itself the Church of Jesus Christ. They do not believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God. Um, and as much as churches today, the majority do not. Christian universities and, and uh, seminaries like Fuller Seminary, they've given up inspiration long ago. The seeker-friendly and emergent church movement avoid preaching about sin, repentance, and doctrine, as we said, seeking to appeal to the people on the basis of love and acceptance. Let's not make judgments. These are the culturally driven, socially and theologically reformed, politically correct churches who compromise the word of God. They're lukewarm by scripture. The church of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea in Philadelphia are side by side until the Lord removes the church of Philadelphia, the one with little strength. Revelation 3.16 says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Wow, that's Jesus speaking. You're better off being cold than lukewarm. Lukewarm, more punishment. You have some knowledge. We see incredible amounts of false doctrine being taught and embraced by the church today. 
by so many calling themselves Christians. Uh, let me just give you some stuff on this guy that's uh, writes uh, against the emerging church, Eric Barger. He says, uh, quote, over a century ago, spiritual liberalism swept through the one-sounded mainline dominations, wrecked theological havoc on anything in its uh, path. One solid and fundamental base seminary became infested with the liberal teaching of the so-called German Enlightenment. Now, I've spoken to you about that. And before long, heretical intellectualism, which um, doubted the authority of the Bible, quickly spread in the leaders and denominations into the pulpits and finally into the pews, and it's there today. The emergent church movement takes its name from the idea that culture has changed, and a new church should emerge in response. It apparently grew out of the discussion group inside the yoga leadership network in the 1990s. The emergence Christianity should be, he says, listen to him, experience over reason, that's what they declare. Spirituality over doctrine and absolutes. Images over words. Feelings over truth. Earthly justice over salvation. Social action over eternity. What a lukewarm church. Non-threatening. Contemplative prayer. Spirituality. That's another practice. We talk about spiritual formation. Some of you young kids, you're going to school. You're going to IPU or different places. Spiritual formation in Christian circles, that's a buzzword for emergent. That's all it is. Okay? Even when I went there in the 80s, spiritual formation was already being introduced in liberalism. It's called Lictio Divina, which is a nutshell, the leading evangelical directly into mystical and sometimes occultic-based practice of the Roman Catholic Church of labyrinths walking around that you could meditate and you just reach your goal and you know, you're going to be perfected. It's all part of the New Age movement and it's all brought together all under this guise. And they put under the banner of Christianity. Much of this is practice in yoga, if you know anything about it. Second Peter 2, 1 through 2 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Here's the key, listen. And many, not few, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Welcome to the church today. Our church, the church of Jesus Christ is going the same way our nation is. Extreme liberal. Jesus warned about the corruption of the church. Are you part of the church of Jesus or are you part of the church of the world? Only you can make that decision. Notice, secondly, comes the proportion comprising the church in 22 through 30. In 22 and 23, the Lord Jesus was questioned about the number of those to be saved. The occasion, and when he uh, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, Jesus began his journey after Peter's confession of Caesarea Philippi, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, we have the line of demarcation in chapter 9, verse 51, as Jesus heads to Jerusalem, walking under the shadow of the cross six months. Jesus is walking uh, through these cities and villages, teaching, uh, not in a straight route. He's making his way down. And uh, he's teaching the people about the kingdom of God by the word of God. And 
its focus is repentance. And Jesus is walking again under the shadow of the cross. He understands his time is short. He's going to state it for us as we move along. Now the teaching opportunity presented a question to Jesus from a disciple. It says, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? The question is not asking a specific number to be saved. It's interesting how much emphasis is placed on numbers of those who are saved by man, especially evangelists. That's the first thing they're going to tell you. We have had 30,000 decisions. We have reached a million people, this and that. The truth of the matter is that most people that come forward, the majority do not endure, and some of them are not even born again. Now, I'm not against evangelism. I'm not against altar calls. I'm just against the numbers that are always thrown out to get your money, to get your attention, to get you emotionally stirred. Okay? Let me see how these guys live before I give them a penny. That's important. Okay? Enough said. The question instead is asking if the amount of those to be saved is greater than those lost. Without any doubt, it had to do with the great multitudes that were following Jesus constantly and coming out. Were there more believers than unbelievers among the crowds? The disciples certainly were no different than you and I today. The Lord Jesus noted his response to the question in the end of 23 through 30. At the end of 23 and 24, Jesus answered the question indirectly. And he said to them, he changes from the one to the them. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Underline, will not be able. Jesus spoke directly to the disciples, them, astonishing them or admonishing them to strive to enter through the narrow gate. The word strive, as you know, we've touched it many times, is an athletic term from the gymnasium games. Uh, one who strives, agonizes to overcome something, especially in wrestling, throwing that man down, pinning him down. Forget about how many are going to be saved, literally Jesus is saying. He says, are you saved? Agonize. We're always, well, I mean, are you saved? Got to take care of the rest. You're ministering to somebody, so we always change the subject to somebody else to divert it from us, right? Well, how about the pygmies? I mean, forget the pygmies. I'm talking to you. By the way, when the pygmies heard it, they repented. Okay? But people, would they do this? No. The word describes a strenuous zeal contending to obtain something. Marking notice personal responsibility here to respond an imperative present durative tense. Constant. Now, this response is not by man's corrupt nature, working to be saved, as Calvinists would accuse us of, but rather enabled by the Spirit through conviction and prompting the heart to be saved. It's through the gospel when we hear it. The agonizing is to enter through the narrow gate. 
open by hearing the gospel. When you hear the gospel, God opens the door. God turns on the light for you to enter in. The gate is entrance to heaven. It speaks of salvation. The narrowness speaks about the limited and specific provision and time to enter heaven. This is by the preaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who alone can forgive the sins of a sinner. So whenever the gospel is preached, God opens the door for that non-believer to hear and understand they're a sinner under God's wrath, and God is able to forgive them and give them eternal life. That's the open door. It isn't by our own, it isn't by people who aren't hearing the gospel because I don't believe in God. That, that's not a rejection of God. It's when God opens the door, when they hear the gospel and they reject it. Now their responsibilities are great. You understand? That's the open door. The many seeking to enter in, notice, and not able, are those who do not respond to the window time to repent. The inability to enter is because you haven't taken advantage of the open door, the time. They may also seek to enter other ways, apart from repentance, which God cannot allow. They will not be able. Window times, you know what they are. They're very, very small. They're only open for a set time. Opportunity to go to school. Opportunity to travel, opportunity to this or that, you fill in the blank. And once it's gone, it's gone. This is salvation that he's talking about. Look at 25 to 28. Jesus illustrates now this window time of repentance by the Jews as time sensitive and limited. The context of this, Jesus is speaking to the Jews first of all. In principle, it'll apply to everybody thereafter. But he's talking about the Jew here. Okay? Stay on track. Be a good hound dog. I'll get to that in a minute. God the Father is the one who initiates salvation. Listen, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at that door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. The running theme and thread here is repentance in view of opportunity. This shut door can take place in one's life by a continuous rejection of the gospel, which indicates ultimate judgment. This certainly takes place after death if there's been no repentance. The Jews were barred from entering here due to not responding to the call to salvation by God. So would all people thereafter. Jesus is speaking to people. Literally. He's talking about the Jew right here. But also by attempting to enter in an unbiblical way. Out of time and unbiblical. Now, in 26, notice, 
the argument of many Jews worked against them in greater judgment by not repenting, but just that they hung around Jesus. Because now they respond, Jesus says. Then you will begin to say, we ate, we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Jesus, don't you remember me? I always sat in the front row to the left, second from the right. Jesus plainly reemphasizes he will reject those who had not repented. That's the key. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. The expression depart from me is an imperative command. The error is active. Stand away from me. This is Jesus, the epitome of love with a broken heart. They perish on their own, not because God rejected them or unconditionally predestined them to be damned like Calvinists teach. The Lord Jesus knew they were workers of iniquity indicated by the fact that they had been unrepentant. That's the key. Matthew 7, 23 Matthew 25, 41 clearly confirms this. Now, notice in 28, the result will be eternal separation from God for these Jews. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. The article is present before weeping and gnashing of teeth, indicating there has never been or ever will be any like it. The word there indicates hell, Gehenna, and the lake of fire. Now, gnashing the teeth, we can, biting down or grinding your teeth, and it'll hurt you, okay? So that gives you kind of an idea it's not comfortable, and it indicates torment. But we can't even describe it or understand it because it's never happened or ever will happen until that time. You understand? It's the torment of the lake of fire for those who have perished being unrepentant. The Jews that did not repent would see Abraham. Notice this. Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, while they were thrust out, driven or cast out emphatic for not entering in the narrow gate. Through what? Repentance. The door. God had nothing to do with this. You decide where you spend eternity, not God. By your opportunity to enter or your lack thereof. Look at 29 through 30. Jesus declared the greatest shock to the Jew that many Gentiles would be saved. Whoa. From the four corners of the earth, it says, they will come from the east, the west, the north, the south, and sit down. In the kingdom of God, the Jew utterly looked down on the Gentiles. You know that they exalted themselves. To hear this was the utter offense to a Jew. Jesus was not politically correct. From the human perspective, things are not what they really are. And 30 says, and indeed, 
There, indeed, there are last who will be first, and there will, are first who will be last. What the heck does this mean? The last are the Gentiles. It's interpreting the previous verse. The last are the Gentile who were far from the kingdom. They will be first. And the first are the Jews who were near the kingdom will be last, not entered in the kingdom. Simple. That's what he's talking about. Okay? But the first represents all who agonize also to enter through the narrow gate, repenting by the gospel, trusting Jesus as their Savior. In principle. But in context, he's talking to the Jew. And he's contrasting the Jew to the Gentile to come. The running red thread of this entire section is repentance. You have to be a good, good hound dog, scripturally. The test of a hound dog, I don't care how much money you pay for that sucker, is when you take him rabbit hunting. Or, or hunting. And if he goes up a rabbit's trail, he's worthless. You must study the word of God and even though this section seems to not have connective entities, it does have it. It's the preaching of the kingdom of God and the need of repentance. The different stories is not the connection. It's that red thread that runs through all of these things. You understand? So you've got to stay on the trail when you study the word of God and not be sidetracked. The church is made up of those who are called out of the world and sin into the kingdom of God. You're an example of that. This takes place by the new birth. John told Nicodemus, you must be born again and you'll never enter the kingdom of God. In John 3, 3 through 5. No exception. The result of the change of life and lifestyle, turning away from sin, being a new creation. All things pass away, everything becomes new in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. This is only possible through the new divine nature that is imparted to us in Second Peter chapter 1, 3 through 4, pertaining to life and godliness, allowing us to escape the corruption of this world. This is for life, abiding in Jesus and His Word. Jesus said that in John 15, 4 through 7. If you do not abide in me, you will be cut off. Now, Jesus is the one that suggested, unless you abide... Do you think Jesus is just speaking hypothetically? Jesus is the one that says there's a possibility that you might not abide. It's real simple. Okay? The church is not what so many say it is. It's another problem. The church is not to judge, they say, but just love one another. Yet God commands us to judge and gives us the ability to judge the word of God. We judge things by the word of God. We are to confront one another if we're in sin. Exhort one another to turn. We're to admonish people who are in sin, who call themselves Christians, to turn from their sin. You as parents are to judge your children according to the word of God. Their standards of lifestyle. So this mute thing that we're not the judge is not biblical. They always go to Matthew 7, but that's... Hypocritical judgment, finding fault in everything. If you do that, it'll come back to you the same. It's completely out of context. Paul says, Mark those that cause divisions among you and have nothing to do with them. Simple. 
To the Corinthians, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest of matters? Because the Corinthians were carnal. They were living in sin. They said, listen, you guys judge what's right and wrong. Don't take each other to the secular courtrooms. The church is not the gathering of good people, as some people think, but rather repentant sinners that are now saints. We are good for nothing but sin. We're not good. The church is not a place to be served, but a rather a place to serve. Jesus is our example in Mark ten forty five. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The church is not a place where a person can believe whatever they want, but rather only what the Bible reveals. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's proper for doctrine, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. This is the plumb line. Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Thank God the church is not built on Peter. (laughs) It's on Christ, the son of the living God, the confession. He builds his church. The church of God is all... Accounted for by God. You don't have to worry about it. The church of God is um, comprised of those who are in heaven and in earth. Some of them have already been in heaven. Pastor Steve Mays just went last week. Pastor Chuck went uh, 364 days before him. And there are many there already. And the others are here on earth. The church of God lives by God's word. The church of God is looking for the Son of God to come in the rapture for the church. And the church of God is being transformed by the Spirit of God. In fact, the early church in Acts 2, 46-47, it says, They continued daily in one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate with their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I've never saved anyone. I never saved myself. Jesus saves. Jesus adds to the church, not us. So Jesus declared the proportion comprising the church. Who are they? Those that repent. Those that live a life of repentance. Simple. Forget about the number. (laughs) Notice the third truth. The distinction of Israel from the church. This is very important. 31 through 35. In 31 to 33, the intention to intimidate Jesus by a religious ruler of Israel is introduced at this time. The identity of the man is given on that very day some Pharisee came. The Pharisees, the separated ones, remember, they came after the Babylonian captivity from the great synagogue, attempting to protect the law because they had gone into captivity. So they made all these oral interpretations. The problem was that they began to worship the interpretation at the expense of God's word. And they became the epitome of hypocrisy and the enemies of God. And the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers were all enemies of Jesus. The indignant words are against Jesus, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Verse 31. He rejected Jesus 
commanding him to depart from the jurisdiction of Herod. This is probably Perea on the east side of Jordan. So Jesus is making his way, zigzagging back and forth. He did not realize that Herod couldn't kill Jesus. Jesus already had a death date and a death appointment. He was walking towards the Jerusalem, the cross. <laughs> Some think that this Pharisee is sympathetic to Jesus, warning him. But the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were in cahoot with Herod. Mark 3, 6 and other passages give us. In fact, Herod wanted to see Jesus. And in chapter 23, 8 and 9 of Luke, later on, Herod, Pilate will send Jesus to Herod. And when Jesus is before Herod, he says not a word to him. Now the door was closed for him. Only judgment waiting for him. Didn't even say a word to him. Jesus would not fear Herod. Look at 32. He had no respect but contempt for Herod. Now if you think I'm bad, listen to Jesus. And he said to them, go tell that fox. That's a female fox, a vixen. Opposite to courageous and bold. <laughs> you go tell that weasel. <laughs> Herod. I love it. He had no intention on abandoning the people. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. He would not abandon his goal to be glorified. And the third day I shall be perfected, being raised from the dead. Verse 32. In 33, Jesus would not be deterred from his mission either. He was focused and determined. He did not have much time left. Listen to the words. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. There's not too many left. He's been in ministry now for almost three and a half years. He's going to be in Jerusalem shortly. He was the prophet of all prophets, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. Moses spoke of the prophet of all prophets. And then notice in 34 and 35, the intention of Jesus now was to reconciliate the Jew first. I mean, he did all that he could. He does not violate your free will or mine. The nation of Israel and the Jewish leaders were guilty of putting to death the prophets sent by God. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Jesus said, therefore, earlier remember in chapter 11, 49 through 51. Therefore, the wisdom of God also says, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar of the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So he already said this in 11, 49-51. Now he declares that he will rightly die in Jerusalem also. Like all other prophets, the ultimate prophet. Jesus later would say, as he got to Jerusalem, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-four. 
You see, the Messiah Jesus was first sent to the house of Israel, to the Jews, but they rejected him as their Messiah. Look at the end of 34. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing, underline that, you were not willing. Who says you can't resist the grace of God? Who says you can't say no to God? <laughs> if you're a Calvinist, you have to deal with that. And you can't just do it with semantic of words. This is what's called a simile. The picture is one of love and protection as a hen gathers her vulnerable chicks under her wings to incur the danger and the damage herself. This is the heart of Jesus being poured out. They had the scriptures about his birth, Genesis 3.15, Micah 5.2. We've seen Luke chapter 1 and 2 about his birth. They had the confirmation of his, at his baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, the Spirit descended upon him. Jesus went under, identified as the Messiah in Luke 3.21 and 22. They had the very day of the Messiah coming right into Jerusalem on the donkey, Zechariah 9.9. Matthew 21, Luke 19. The personal rejection is a charge. Make no mistake of it. Listen, but you were not willing. This is, this is key. You were not willing. They opposed, insulted, and accused Jesus. They constantly rejected and resisted the grace of God. This happens only when grace illuminates, not before. You reject God, you resist the grace of God when you hear the gospel and you don't repent. There's a greater judgment. This is the context. Jesus has expressed it very clearly about the door. And will not be able. The Messiah of the Jews ultimately rejected them and Jesus declared judgment over them. The near future would bring the nation to an end. Look at 35. See, your house is left to you desolate. In 70 AD, Titus ran to Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, took all the gold, all the furnishings. He killed and pillaged the city and enslaved and so many Jews leaving only a small contingency of poor people in the land. Ultimately, the last wiping up is in 135 A.D. as Rome put down the last rebellion and salted the land of Israel and renamed it Palestinia after their natural enemies, the Philistines. And that's where you get the made-believe history of the Palestinian people. No one declared or identified themselves to be a Palestinian before 1955 except the Jews that were left in the land because there was the insult under Rome. There has never been a Palestinian nation, a Palestinian people, a Palestinian land. It's make-believe. But there's also no more terrorism. There were sea contingencies, man-made disasters. Al-Qaeda, Hamas is decimated. Next thing we'll hear is there's no Ebola in the United States. Interesting. 
Notice the far future will bring the nation to her Messiah. The far future, the love of God. 35 at the end, the authority is that, that of Jesus, supreme, ultimate, and divine. I assuredly say to you, this is the prophetic authority. He knows all things. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he says in chapter 19, 41 and 42, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. A broken heart by Jesus. The time would be at the second coming to set up the kingdom age promise to Israel. Look at 35. You shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The quote is from Psalm 118.26. This is the end of the seven-year tribulation, Matthew 23.47. After Israel has been protected by God in the city of Petra, the last three and a half years, Isaiah 16.1, Revelation 12, then Jesus will return his church with him, fight the battle of Armageddon, collect his remnant, and set up the kingdom. Revelation 19, Isaiah 65, 8 through 10, and many other passages. Now, there is a great difference between a woman who has been married and divorced and one who has never been married and is anticipating a wedding. I hope you don't confuse them. To confuse Israel with the church is to do the same. Israel is the wife put away by divorce because of adultery. The church is made up of Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, a virgin looking for a wedding. Never confuse them. The church is not spiritual Israel as the majority of churches and universities and seminaries teach today. Israel is the wife of God put away by adultery as a nation. Isaiah 50 verse 1, the whole book of Hosea is a message of adultery. And God redeeming her back. The church is the bride of Christ, a virgin, looking forward to that wedding. Paul says that in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. And again, the church is made of Jew and Gentile. One, there's neither sitting, barbarian, male, female, Jew, Gentile, all one in Christ completely. The church is looking to the rapture to be with Jesus. Jesus is the first one to mention in John 14, 1 through 3. I go to receive you, that I come back to receive you to myself. That where I am there, you may be also. So when Jesus comes for the church, it's First Thessalonians, the rapture, we're caught up. When we come back with him, it's Second Thessalonians, we come back with him to set up the kingdom. Jesus sets up the kingdom. The church will never set up the kingdom. Harpazo, suddenly, violently, First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, will we be caught up with them, those dead bodies in the grave, to be transformed and transfigured to receive our glorified bodies. The church and the remnant of Israel are clearly distinguished by Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 17 through 28. The olive branch is Israel, as you know. The church is the wild olive branch grafted in, verse 17 through 19. There should be no boasting, for if God did not spare Israel and cut her off because of unbelief, if we do not abide, he will cut us off also, verse 20 and 23 says. God will graft Israel in again. We shouldn't be ignorant to the blindness and part that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. The rapture, verse 24 and 25 of Romans 9. God will deliver the remnant of Israel 
verse 26 and 28 of Roman 9. But God will allow the most horrible time that Israel has ever gone through under the hand of the Antichrist during the tribulation and great tribulation to prepare her for her Messiah. When they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will see the one who they pierced. Wow. Jesus revealed the distinction of Israel from the church. And so should we. Here you have Jesus speaking about the kingdom through repentance. Revealing these three truths about the church. The corruption of the church is the first truth. We see it all around us today. The proportion comprising the church, it's those who have repented. Forget about numbers. The distinction of Israel from the church, don't confuse them. They're not the same. Thank God Jesus taught this. Now we have to stay on course as good hound dogs. Don't go up rabbit trails. Take heed how you hear and what you hear Jesus said. Lord, thank you for your grace and love. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we pray you deal with our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, you would speak to them. They would respond to you, Lord, in repentance. If you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you've never heard the gospel. Maybe it's the first time. But there's no guarantee there'll be a second. Today's the day of salvation, not tomorrow. If you want to be born again, if you see yourself as a sinner by God's grace, then He enables you right now to repent and to ask Him to save you. This is your prayer to him and he will do that right now. Maybe you're over the internet. You can do it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.